Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are, as we are every week, rereading our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron series. Ian, we're starting to head toward the goal line, towards the end of Clarissa Oaks and the true love. Can you catch us up? I'd love to catch everybody up. Let's look at where we are. Last time, Stephen had been sending clues about the identity of that mysterious top French agent, uh, sending clues about that person's identity back to Sir Joseph Blaine. Jack had been embarrassed and angry about the crew's poor performance of the unmooring. And to be honest, that's going to hang over us for a little while longer, I think. Jack had proposed making Oakes acting lieutenant. Oh my gosh, what a thought. Until Tom had told Jack about the deadly feud over Clarissa between West and Davidge. Jack had addressed those two down in the cabin. He'd asked Pullings to highlight which crew members had been shirking their duty. Martin, meanwhile, had turned down a dinner invitation for the captain, almost unheard of, and had broken his viola to try and stay away from Clarissa. Jack's anger and the crew's disruption were still evident at divisions and at church, and Jack, meanwhile, had warmed to the rather more outgoing Oaks at that dinner, and Stephen had been continuing to school Clarissa on the real everyday world of men. So, Mike, that was last chapter, and and packed to the brim it was too. This week, we've got a nasty, brutish, and short episode, but I'm sure all of those are good things, right? The lion-like <laughs> Captain Aubrey is still angry, and he's going to preside over some punishment in this chapter. There's going to be more Latin. Yay! Stephen and Martin are going to go fishing and sight the evil one, Stephen's going to learn more about Clarissa. Martin's going to preach. Jack's going to form a plan. We are going to draw ever closer to action. And it's only chapter eight, Mike. We're going to draw ever closer to action and the urgent need to pull the ship, the officers and the crew back together. Gunnery, anyone? Mike, you, you can almost smell the slow match drifting across the deck. Ah, I love the smell of slow match in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's not all, Mike. This week, we're going to be talking to Josh Corey, English professor and writer of a really excellent series of online essays about the O'Brien canon. We're going to get Josh's point of view about O'Brien's rich writing, about the strange character of Nathaniel Martin, and some connections, great and small, to other authors that are fascinating to follow up on. We're really looking forward to talking to Josh. Yeah, love that. Love that conversation. Ian, as we open chapter eight, Monday morning dawns beautifully, but the crew's usual cheerfulness is missing as they're working, uh, as everybody knows, kind of very diligently in an exemplary manner. So they're still, I think they're still suffering under this. Oh my gosh, the captain's not happy with this. You know, the old surprises who are messing together are talking about, you know, that the skipper was reported to have come on deck at first light and that his good morning to Mr. West was cold enough to freeze his balls off. Uh, And said that, you know, he just said that to West, you know, he checked the logboard, and then he paces in his nightshirt, and the text says, like a lion seeking whom he might devour. And for, you know, for you Old uh, Testament and New Testament fans alike, you know, you might remember this from First Peter 5, 8. So this New Testament reference to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, 
as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So they're, you know, they're having this conversation and Joe Place is saying, well, well you know, they're not going to do anything to me. I, I was only just following orders. Boy, we know how well that, that excuse has held up through history. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, he details it out. He said, you know, I, I belayed when one officer said, belay their place, God damn your eyes. And he, and he said he did it even though he knew that belaying was going to bring them by the lee. And then another officer called out, let go, let go forward there, let go place, God damn your limbs. And Place said, you know, I just did what everybody told me. He said it would have been mutiny else. I'm as innocent as a drove of lambs. So <laughs> and we're already getting this kind of biblical lions and lambs stuff here going. And I think something we see go through the chapter and, yeah. and hearing, you know, that this, uh, you know, this whole unmooring ship incident from last chapter still really hanging over the crew. It, it really is. Everybody knows that the captain's on a downer. Everybody, I think, appreciates that the Jack's anger is completely justified. Somewhere in the text it says, you know, they they they, they feared and respected his anger, but they knew that it was it was all on them. Um, Padeen, I think, is trying to make the best of it. He comes along enthusiastic for the day's beautiful weather, and he says the weather would soften the heart of Hector or Pontius Pilate himself. But that dissipates very quickly when the officers appear on deck at 11 in full dress uniforms because it's going to be hands to witness punishment. Wow. Pullings orders the grating rigged and Jack sends the women below and man by man, he hears the accused sailors come up. Um, he hears the charge. He hears their response. He hears the evidence of character or not from their officers. He hears any attenuating circumstances, renders his decisions. And in this wonderfully kind of formal poetical flow here the relevant article of war is read out and the sentence and the punishment are administered and this is brutal but we're going to learn that it's not as brutal as it could have been some of the men receive 12 lashes more of them receive only a half dozen six and as the text says grog is stopped left and right and just as predicted by the crew there was this awkward moment when the bosun had to flog his mate the boatswain's mate being the guy who's normally doing the flogging, and not wanting to be seen to favour his friend, the the lashings that go to the boatswain's mate are probably the most strongly administered, and the boatswain is really embarrassed and confused and uneasy, as it says in the text, as a result. And even though this is relatively benign as naval floggings go, this really strikes Paddy into the heart, and he's in tears as he and Martin attend each flogged man and Mike, there's some difference as well in the way that the crew all respond to their floggings, right? There, there really is. You know, Waitman, the butcher, he cries out, and he's the only one that does. And, and as this, you know, punishment is going on, Stephen is examining Mrs. Oaks. They, they hear Waitman cry out, and Stephen informs her that punishment is being administered. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's she's asking Stephen about punishment, what the typical sentences are. And she's so used to the South Wales lashes, you know, delivered in, you know, in hundreds and is surprised that how, how few Jack gives. Now, finishing the exam, Clarissa says how she adored Dr. Redfern when he told her that she was neither pregnant nor diseased, that, that she could certainly have easily been both given how many times she'd been raped. Stephen says that, you know, he's, he's very sorry. And she says, you know, kind of don't worry about that because it really meant so little to her 
as long, she says, as there were no consequences, this pregnancy or disease. And then Ian, they, they continue to talk about pain, this idea of pain and how sailors are taking pain and how, you know, kind of almost tying it to how Clarissa uh, sees the world as well. Yeah, indeed. Um, Stephen remembers that Captain Cook had reported at very, very different levels of response to flogging. He said, flogging islanders for stealing, he said, you might as well flog the mainmast. It made no difference to them. Stephen had seen Native Australians, Aborigines in New South Wales, who completely disregarded burns and blows and, 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 and cruel thorns. He said he'd noticed that most Navy men take 12 lashes without a murmur, Waitman clearly being the exception here. And he wonders then why Clarissa's experiences did not beat the softer, kinder emotions out of you entirely, leaving you sullen, morose, and withdrawn. And this is an odd thing for Stephen to say. It's partly he's graciously saying, isn't it great that you haven't turned out the way you could have done? And in a way, he's also fishing, I think, for her to do a bit of self-reflection because I think he's appreciated in various ways the previous conversations that they've had. And Clarissa says, well, maybe I'd never had any of those softer emotions. She says that she disliked cats and dogs and babies. We've already heard her say how she didn't, doesn't like kids. Um, she wasn't fond of dolls and pet rabbits. She violently resented being crossed, but has never been sullen or morose or withdrawn, to use Stephen's words exactly. Right. And there's this little touching moment. She says, I do mean to be kind to people who are kind to me or who need kindness. And she observes that she likes being liked. She loves good company and cheerfulness. And Mike, she comes in with this great quote, another great Latin quote for this book here. Sic eremus cuncti postquam nos alfaret orcus, ergo vivamus dum licet esse, bene. So take us home there, Mike. What's all this Latin about today? Well, luckily we've got our consulting medieval Latinist, Karen Ruff again. And you know, she points out this, this comes from Petronius's Satyricon, or you know, the adventures of a young satyr. It is the same thing that Clarissa had quoted back in chapter six when she was talking about uh, her attitude towards intercourse. Now, we've got a couple of translations here of this Latin phrase, hmssurprise.org, the, you know, the wiki that has some translations of all the other languages besides English in the canon, says, thus we will all be after Orcus, who they point out is the god of the underworld, bears us off. Therefore, let us live well for so long as it is allowed. Now, I found another reference to this on ancienttimesblogspot.com, and they borrow from the J. Paul Getty Museum that had an actual little skeleton, almost like a puppet skeleton made out of silver. And in this story in in the Satyricon, uh, Paternix has the hero. He's this kind of nouveau riche host of a dinner party. And as the guests are kind of whining and dining there, he brings out this little skeleton puppet and poses them on the table and then says to them this line here and essentially translating it. He's holding up the skeleton and say, alas, for us, poor mortals, thus we shall all be after Hades takes us away. Therefore, let us live while it goes well with us. And, and this seems, you know, to me, kind of pretty consistent with what Clarissa is trying to say. She wants everybody to live and let live while we can here. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. I'm, I'm looking at all these little ancient Roman skeletons and reading about this stuff from Satyricon. And I realized that the day I was making these notes, it was the day of the dead in, in the huh. US. <laughs> so, so, and south of the border. So I thought, well, very, very appropriate here. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's an interesting little philosophical alley that Clarissa seems keen to run down. But we do come back, of course, to the regular Clarissa world of her, her simply not understanding how people in the rest of the everyday world conflate the idea of love and the idea of sex. She says, I'm not a monster capable of affection. And here she reaches out and touches him on the hand. But I can't connect affection with what she calls toying, striving, grasping. What, what can I call it without being gross? With anything of a carnal nature. And to her, affection and the act, as one might call it, seem to be poles apart. And Stephen says, I'm sure they do. Which is, which is a very therapeutic counselor kind of response from Stephen. Yes, I, I see that that is how the world seems to you. Very nice bit of empathy. And he's, I think he's encouraging here to keep talking a little bit more. He goes back to the Latin quote and noting that that might be where Mr. Oakes had got his couplet at dinner the day before. And Mike, I got to this point and I thought, hold on a second, let me rewind. Help us out with that. What was the couplet that Oakes had come up with? Yeah, right at the end of dinner, Oakes was kind of giving the, the, the closing toast and he said, so long as we may, let us enjoy this breath for naught doth kill a man so soon as death. Hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's quite a broad translation. That doesn't sound like a literal word for word retranslation. That's quite broad, isn't it? <laughs> No, and Clarissa tells Stephen, you know, when Stephen says, you know, oh, is that where, you know, your husband got that? And she says, well, yes, it was a doggerel version that I made up while I was putting on my gown, but I was astonished that he should remember it. So, <laughs> I think Oaks was surprising a lot of people at that dinner. Yeah, for sure. Well, later, Stephen dines in the gun room. And, and the text says it's a rather silent gun room, but one in which the malignance had been largely replaced by anxiety and even a certain fellow feeling. So, you know, these guys who are kind of at each other's throats and, and you know, about to duel or worse, you know, and people throwing each other down ladders and things. Now, yeah, really changing tone. However, Martin, you know, kind of in contrast, is, is just eating wolfishly. And it's telling <laughs> Stephen that, you know, he's seen the, all these boobies, all these birds gathered over this part of the water that the knowledgeable hands are telling him is a you know, likely to be a very good fishing ground. And he invites Stephen to go fishing. And uh, Pulling says, well, you know, you medicos can go off and go fishing, but I suspect that we hands are going to be doing nothing but exercising from now until Christmas. So it's yeah. pretty clear what Jack's prescription is. You know, he's angry, 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 and now you're going to get busy, busy, busy. You're not going to be carrying on the way you've been carrying on. I'm going to see to that. Absolutely. And, and to set that up, there's going to be a beautiful juxtaposition here. The, the, the crew are about to get busy. So Nathaniel Martin and Stephen Maturin go floating in a boat in the quiet, still, calm. The surprise is motionless in the water. Stephen and Martin head off in this little skiff, this little rowboat to the fishing grounds. S Stephen, being a complete natural when it comes to nakedness, takes off his clothes. The shamefaced Martin keeps some clothes on and suffers on in the heat. Um, they get to the fishing ground and there are squids pursuing crabs. There are the larvae of different marine life forms that neither of them can identify. And down at the next level, under the shade of the boat, there are these schools of fish, 
that seem a little bit like mackerel crossing and recrossing each other as they feed upon the fry while the boobies themselves dive into the water and prey on everything. And it's this very beautiful microcosm of still beautiful self-sustaining nature. They gather samples, of course, being naturalists. They gather 11 kinds of squid, two that they can't identify. They catch all the fish that they can possibly eat. And Martin says, paradise must have been very like this. And he's thinking how happy the crew will be with all the fresh fish. And a couple of things catch his eye. The first thing to catch his eye is that he looks back to the surprise and is momentarily shocked. He says, oh my God, they've lost a mast. And Stephen, who is right now is loving playing the master mariner to Nathaniel Martin's lover, says, oh, he turns his spyglass back towards the surprise. He says, oh, I, I see what's happening here. They're shifting topmasts. They're going from aft from the mizzen forward. It's this very, very strenuous exercise. And here's the contrast. Martin and Stephen floating in their boat, the crew literally taking the ship apart and putting it back together again against the clock, driven by their angry captain. And Stephen very calmly explains to Martin the drill that's going on here. He says this is an exercise to make them brisker. He says it's to strengthen their sense of combined, exactly synchronous effort in a spirit of competition. And Stephen reaches back to his memories. He says, I've seen the surprises beat the most crack ships in the Navy competing at drills like this. So shifting their attention back to the water, they note that the squids are more active than ever here. And, and Martin believes that there may be some species that they don't know among them. And he leans over this skiff with this long-handled net, but then he draws back immediately after looking down into the water. And in a shocked voice, Martin says, do not move, do not hang your arm over the side. My image of paradise was only too exact. The evil one is with us too. So once again, in this chapter, we had another reference to the devil here. Here's the evil one. And and peering over the side of, of this frail skiff, you know, both of them see this shark, which appears far larger than most of the ones that they've seen before. Martin asks if it's likely to bump their boat. And, you know, Stephen kind of goes into this big thing, say, oh, yeah, it, it probably will. It just might, by, by rising suddenly, maybe it'll launch itself bodily into the middle of the boat. Maybe it may grab the boat, snap it right and left. You know, and Stephen's going on and Martin just says, I wonder you can speak with le- such levity and you, a married man. <laughs> I think Martin's, Martin's not pleased at all with uh, Stephen's lightness and I think kind of joking a little bit. Well, just at that time, a booby, one of these birds, dives into the water. The shark moves out from under the boat, grabs it in its mouth, and dives. And Martin, you know, asks Stephen if he thinks the shark is coming back. And Stephen says, now, you know, that booby has such an unpleasant taste that the shark probably thinks that they belong to the same genus and won't come back. So <laughs> I think, you know, so the shark is obviously a naturalist as well. This is, <laughs> the whole boat is one genus. Very good. It's, it's great to have the perspective of the shark for a second here. Yeah. Um, so th- this juxtaposition has broken down now because this there's, there's beautiful, still tranquil scene has been disturbed by the shark. And it's disturbed as well by another roaring predatory animal, which is Captain Aubrey. And they hear this urgent piping and the captain's powerful voice urging haste. The boats are all lowered. This is nothing to do with Stephen and Nathaniel Martin. This is a boating exercise that's now going on over with the surprise. The crews jump into their boats at breakneck speed and they haul the ship towards the boobies. And as the ship gets to the Martin, thinking back to the shark's cold look, thinks, well, I'm glad I've got solid heart of oak 
beneath my feet. And the exercise doesn't let up. They're all back aboard. Supper comes and goes. The drum beats for quarters. And now, in addition to shifting topmasts, mast by mast, and boat exercise and towing, we now get straight into gunnery. But it's all in dumb show. Even though there's plenty of powder, Jack is so angry with the officers and men that he doesn't want to give them any kind of pleasure or redemption from this exercise at all. There's no indulgence, and the hands know it. Even when they get to the end of the evening, and this would normally have been the time when they'd have been singing and dancing in the forecastle, they just sit around. They did not resent the skipper's anger, it says. They knew it was justified, but they hoped it would not last. Right. Which just has to me, that's, that's the, you know, the naughty kids who know they're in trouble, kind of sitting there silently in the port corner going, I hope that we, you know, the good times are coming again soon. It turned out that they hoped in vain. Jack continued every day to exercise them strenuously all the way through this period of these variable winds. They manned and armed boats. They lowered the boats down and hoisted them in. They sent up sails. They shifted topmasts all again in these timed exercises. They bent on new sails. They painted the ship. They had small arms and cutlass exercises. And Mike, this just sounds like unremitting punishment for the crew here. Yeah, yeah. It clearly Jack is just this lion on deck. But interestingly. You know, uh, O'Brien tells us that even though he's severe every time he's on the quarterdeck, he's completely amiable in the cabin. And he, you know, he wholeheartedly enjoys playing his music with Stephen. And and O'Brien tells us that only the deep lines on his face show the strain that he's under. And Jack, you know, takes time out to tell Stephen what a refuge the cabin is for him and having Stephen to talk with and to play music with. That, you know, other captains, they have to chew on their problems alone. And he says, you know, given that, he's not surprised that so many of them grow strange or bloody minded or run melancholy mad. So, you know, kind of, again, you know, one of these touching things, it seems for me, with Jack talking about how much he appreciates Stephen. Well, even after they reach the Northeast Trades, Jack is cordial to Pullings, Oaks, and Reed. He's civil to Martin. He's markedly polite to Clarissa when he sees her, but stern, impersonal, remote, and demanding with the other officers in the foremast Jack. So he's unrelenting to the rest of this crew here. And they continue to work hard day and night. Uh, They're making their 200 sea miles a day. Uh, But the wind is a bit too northerly and inconsistent. And Jack makes sure to keep West and Davidge and Oaks aloft all the time, you know, supervising his orders, anticipating his orders. And they all become, you know, O'Brien tells us, worn and lean and quiet at their gunroom dinners from fatigue rather than, you know, before they had been quiet because they were so, you know, jealous and upset with each other. You know, the text says none of them had ever known a ship driven so hard, so long. It's fascinating, isn't it, that Jack seems to be just purely wreaking punishment on the hands and the officers for this terrible misconduct when they were um, unmooring. But there's got to be an end somehow. And part yeah. of me is reading this thinking, this is Jack Aubrey. He's not a tyrant. He's not one of those hard horse captains. There's, there's got to be an end. Either there's got to be some redemption for the crew or there's got to be some other fresh purpose that comes along. And I think we get a hint about the fresh purpose as Stephen is writing home to Diana. 
he says, we're setting this cracking pace. Uh, we're almost against the wind. And we all know that Surprise sails really well when she's on a bowling like this, leaning over, solid water coming over the ship and these wonderful trade winds. Jack almost always on deck and soaked to the skin. These are all signifiers of happy times now for Jack. And Jack means to reach Moahu as soon as he can. But even more, says Stephen in his letter, he wishes to deal with the present situation by recalling the hands to their duty. And he is doing so with a greater authority than I knew he possessed. And Mike, that's that's a big bar. Jack is right. already a, a pretty strong authority figure and knows how to use his authority, his natural authority. But he's taking it to an even higher pitch than even Stephen has ever seen before. And therefore, Stephen's not entirely sure. He says... I'm not sure if Jack will succeed. There are all these rival clans, all these divisions in the ship. Divisions, small d, meaning divisions between people. Divisions, capital D, meaning the different divisions, the foremast division, the foredeck, the wasters, and so on, that are looked after by their individual officers who are claiming a bit of loyalty from the hands here. And as Stephen sees it, there is, on the one hand, the majority who condemn Clarissa for lying with any member of the quarterdeck at all, apart from her husband. There are those who condemn her for lying with any officer but their own. And there are those who support Oaks without reserve, mostly the people in his division, capital D, and they call themselves the Oak Apples. There are those who condemn him for having beaten his wife. And there are those who support their divisional officer, whatever his situation with regard to her. And there are those who still look upon Clarissa with affectionate esteem. And Mike, this is a complicated picture we know that Jack loves a unified, happy ship. But amongst this recipe for all these different divisions between the divisions, th th there's a lot for Jack to wade through here. Yeah, there really is. And and I think you know this is one of the few times I remember seeing Stephen almost wishing he could help Jack more than he can. You know, Stephen does not want to talk about his fellow gun room members and everything else. But Stephen's saying to um, to Diana that even if he could open his mind to Jack, he doubts it would be useful. And he says part of the problem is he doesn't think he could make Jack understand that Clarissa sees the sexual act as trivial mm -hmm. of no consequence. And Stephen writes that, you know, it's like the Japanese. They see the kiss as as much as of a, a deed of darkness or, you know, the need for total privacy as as you know, kind of the, the English and the Western world sees physical lovemaking. So it's kind of this, you know, Stephen's trying to say to Diana and, and trying to talk to us about how it is the way we think about these things rather than their character themselves. It's how we see them there. Japanese see it like this. Clarissa sees it like this. We see it like this. It says for Clarissa, because of her peculiar upbringing, and the, the text says kiss and coition are much the same and insignificant. Furthermore, she takes not the slightest pleasure in either. It says through her good nature and compassion and desire to be liked, she's admitted some men to her bed, but she's done so innocently. And now she's astonished to find herself loved and hated rather than merely liked by those she's obliged. And, you know, she's also, as the text says, condemned by many who were in no way concerned that, as Stevens pointed out, as you said, Ian, with all these yeah. and little d divisions, it's like, look, this is none of your business here. And, you know, but everybody is lining up and taking sides in this thing. And it's just, boy, it is a real, you know, we, we've said 
over and over that O'Brien writes about the human condition, albeit yeah, yeah. in the you know in 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 the context of the Royal Navy, but it's in context of us as human beings here. Yeah, and Clarissa's got a lot to learn about this, and she's clearly keen to get it from Stephen. He's trying to explain the situation to her. He tries to explain, as he calls it, the standard by which a wide variety of partners, if not from obscurity, is laudable in oneself. He's talking about the point of view of men here and vile in women. The want of sequence or even common honesty of mind, coupled with unshakable conviction, the unreasonable yet very strong and very painful emotions that arise from jealousy, a feeling to which she is almost entirely a stranger, and the very great force of rivalry. So Stephen has tried to lay out these different uh, influences and balances in a group of people. And this is something on which Clarissa is almost childishly naive, and he's trying to explain this still, I think, in the letter back to Diana. He had let Clarissa know that nothing can be done secretly aboard ship. It will become known, and this is the broadest hint he's given her yet, that pretty much everybody is wise to what she's been doing. He thinks that she believes him, and he thinks that she's determined to renounce the, the, the fornication, the sexual contact with the crew. But Stephen doesn't know how that will go, because there's you know, it, it, it takes two to tango, and it takes two to decide not to tango in a way as well. He says, she has lit a fire that will not easily be put out. On a low for the moment, Jack keeps all hands in such a state of perpetual activity that the members of the gunroom mess can hardly put one foot in front of the other when they come below. These passions, confined as they are in space, may burst out later with a shocking force. And Mike, it, another nice bit of juxtaposition here. Jack is getting ready to encounter what enemy, whatever it might be, is waiting for them on Moahu. But meanwhile, there's an enemy with an almost shocking potential brutality closeted here aboard the ship. Yeah, I think it's it's almost that that old pogo line. We've met the enemy, and it is us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here they are. You know, I, I love this too. That you know, here you know, we think in, in this genre, you know, all the all the battles are going to be with cannons and ships and everything else. But here, clearly, we've got this battle battle inside of the individual characters, battle amongst the characters. All because, as Stephen said, because of their beliefs and the stories, the stories that they tell each other, the things that become acceptable, the way we, you know, kind of the mores we have for ourselves and for others here. And yeah. and I, I I really admire Stephen for, you know, trying to help everyone here. He wants to help Jack. He wants to help Clarissa. Wants to help the other officers. And and also realizing his own limitations and not trying to take agency away from anyone, especially Clarissa, not saying this is all on you. This is your fault. Bad woman. No, no, no. Yeah. He's you know, trying to say, look, she perhaps is the most innocent in all this. It's all of us who should know better and do better. Yeah. And, now, and it's really fascinating as a, if we're trying to think of Stephen as the expression of O'Brien's point of view, he's been super, super um, n- neutral very, very uh, therapist-like. All of his conversations end up with a little non sequitur or a little reflective question back to the other person. He hasn't tried to manipulate anybody else's behavior, I don't think. He's been keen to sort of calm down the tempo and the temperature of any conversations that seem to get out of hand uh, to a greater extent than I've ever seen him. I mean, he's often yes. like this like this in odd episodes. In this book, almost all the way through these first chapters, he's been the grown-up. <laughs> right, right. Now, speaking speaking of grown-ups, I'm thinking about two other grown-ups, and I'm really worried about how they're going to take these letters, you know, Diana and Sophie. Yeah. You know, I can just see myself writing back, you know, to my dear bride going, 
yeah, there's this woman who just, you know, really has sex casually with everybody. And, you know, everybody on our team is, and it's, you know, it's causing some team members, but Hey, I see how she feels that way. And, you know, it's, you know, maybe she'll give it up. Maybe she won't. I'm thinking what? So I don't know. I'm, I'm a little worried here. And again, it's not the woman. It's, it's not the woman. It's us. Right. Yeah. Well, I think in that case, Mike, it might be time for us to go and check on our letter writing back home. Um, right, let, right. Let's step away. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back in just a few minutes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed your break. We're going to take a moment now for a couple of parish notices. Um, we want to say hello uh, and thank you for some listener contact. A big hello, in fact, to the members of the Gun Room. The Gun Room, as lots of you know, is the venerable email list server that plays host to some of the most enduring of the Patrick O'Brien fans and a splendid crew they are. When I say venerable and enduring, that sounds like I'm being polite about them mostly being old, which is probably true, but lots of love nonetheless. Two of the listeners on the gun room have got in contact to talk about things that we covered in previous chapters. Kate Bunting, hello Kate, chimed in to help us out with the Clarissa reference to uh, a man who was described as living in Piccadilly with his wife and mistress. And Kate says this was in fact the fifth Duke of Devonshire, yet another real character showing up in these stories. Uh, the Duke of Devonshire was husband to a notorious person called Georgiana. He had, in fact, later married his mistress after Georgiana's death, and all three of them were buried in Derby Cathedral, which is where Kate hails from. Fellow gun member Mark Eilith, hello Mark, also had a follow-up on the same chapter. There's a reference to Queen Puolani as being a poor, weak woman. And Mark writes, this feels to me like an allusion to Queen Elizabeth I's famous speech at Tilbury. There are many different versions of it. One of them in particular says, as Mark records here, I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. And really nice pickup there. Thank you, Mark. That sounds so much like it could have been a reference to Queen Puolani. Very apposite. So thank you once again, Kate and Mark. By the way, both Kate and Mark are supporters on Patreon. So thank you to both of you for your support of the show as well. A big hello again to the gun rumors if you're listening. Uh, and meanwhile, Mike, where have we got to? What's Stephen up to? Well, remember, Stephen was sitting there thinking about Clarissa. He was penning, you know, his ongoing letter to Diana and, and, Right at this point, Killick interrupts him, bringing him a lantern, as Killick so often does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah poor eyes. And and Jack also comes in, and, and Steve is really surprised to see that Jack is, for the first time in, in many days, completely dry. Jack invites Stephen to come join him for coffee and breadfruit toast. And O'Brien informs us that, you know, Killick is still unnaturally meek, but a little bit of his familiar shrewishness has returned. He brings in a very meager plate of breadfruit, saving the rest for himself. So, you know, it's a reminder that even when we've lost the moral advantage, our perception of that loss may not last very long. So. <laughs> yes. And I don't think we're done yet in this book with the giving and receiving and ebbing and flowing of moral advantage. Right. <laughs> 
So um, Jack decides to give Stephen a bit of a briefing on where we're headed. And remember, we, we were thinking before the break about what, what's going on with all this punishment. Is there anything coming to give us some relief or some payoff? And we're starting to get a hint of that right now. Jack shows Stephen the chart of Moahu that he'd got from Wainwright. And he explains his plan, which is to sail straight into Pabe Harbor. That's in Kalahua's country in the north. To sail in looking like a whaler. This sounds like an old familiar Jack Aubrey slash Thomas Cochran kind of exploit. Right. To there engage the Franklin directly, the way that they had gone after the Diane in St. Martin's, as old surprises and old Shelmastonians will remember. And if the Northerners turn out to have set up shore batteries using the True Love's guns, then they'll have to stand off and deal with them first. He wants to land a flying column. And it's funny, we'd heard this reference in passing from Stephen a few paragraphs ago, muttering something about a flying column. Now we hear where it pays off. Jack wants to land a flying column, meaning a, a, a group of men who were ready to be mobile, half a mile south of the harbor. This flying column will set up a distraction, take the opponents from behind as the surprise batters them from the front. And Jack asks Stephen for some help. He says, take a look at this proposed list of men and strike off any that are not medically sound. And now we're getting a hint of what he's hoping for with this big shakedown that he's under, got underway here. He says, I don't want any pox. I don't want any burst and bellies, meaning hernias. I don't want any agents above 35. So, Mike, you, you and I might just shave into the category of being on the ship here. Right. Um, <laughs> no agents over 35. Um, they are four days away from Moahu, and Jack plans to ease off on the men. Hooray! To give nice. them a quiet Sunday, give them target practice on the Monday, and then tell them what's afoot. And since Stephen is being asked for thoughts on his fellow crew members that lie within his purview as a medical man, he's pretty okay with this. He marks off on the list who are the men who are not really physically sound. And Jack says, huh, there's the question of command. And now it gets difficult for Stephen. He hesitates to ask Stephen about his messmates. And Stephen responds with his closed face and says, Purely as the ship's surgeon, they're all medically sound to command. And again, very, very deftly, Stephen is leaving that there for Jack to interpret as he, Jack, sees fit. Jack says, I'm very happy to hear it. And then comes the embarrassed silence. To break the silence, Stephen tells Jack that if they had enough time and if there was enough space in the world, Jack could use the Irish manner to choose his band. And he goes on to explain what is this Irish manner. He explains the method of Finn McCool. And Jack remembers, just as I think we do, that Stephen told the story of Finn McCool uh, way back, I think, at the end of The Surgeon's Mate. He says, oh, yes, that was the gentleman that was so fond of salmon, which is a great <laughs> Aubrey line. If you want to go back to episode 86, you can hear about Finn, the hero of Irish mythology, and his encounter with the salmon of knowledge uh, that's the same episode in which we had the uh, excellent interview with Jeff Hunt, if you remember that one. Anyhow, Stephen now goes ahead and describes the arduous set of tasks that any person had to go through to be accepted into Finn McCool's army. That included learning the 12 Irish books of poetry by heart, withstanding javelin tossers with only a sword and shield, running through the woods pursued by one of the army's seven cohorts, outrunning them all without the loss of a hair, without breaking a stick along the way, whilst leaping over any tree as tall as him in the way, stooping under any tree as low as his knees, and removing any thorns from his feet without impeding his running at all. Which, Mike, that sounds to me like the kind of escapades that we used to brag about to each other as boys in the primary school playground. It's, it sounds like a bit of a stretch. 
Well, it sounds to me like the way they used to introduce the Superman television show, you know, yeah. leaps all buildings in a single bout, right? Faster than <laughs> a speeding like, bullet. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, Jack takes this, I, I, I'm not sure what's meant by Jack's reply here. I like to think of it as complete deadpan. Like, I'm not right. going to respond to all of this kind of one-upmanship. He goes, huh, 12 books, did you say? 12 upon my soul. And all by heart. Alas. With a Sunday coming between, I doubt it can be accomplished. <laughs> well done, Jack. Giving as good as he gets there. Right. Well, on Sunday, Sunday morning, divisions go perfectly. And, and the captain appears to have lost some of his wickedness. So the crew is liking that. Jack even leaves off the articles of war from church. And he leaves the sermon to Mr. Martin. Now, Martin, as we all remember, who doesn't feel qualified to preach typically, but right now is in particular feeling not qualified to instruct others in moral and still less spiritual matters, reads the work of, as O'Brien calls it, more able or at least more confident men. And as he's done ever since his earliest sermons on the surprise, that when he did those early ones, they were not well received. And ever since then, he's been using other people's sermons here. So Stephen is off in the distance. Um, you know, he's uh, he's already said the rosary with Padine and, and the fellow Catholics there. And he hears some, you know, some bits and pieces of Martin's sermon. And Martin is preaching about people studying hard and well and still not becoming successfully or you know, having tragedy strike them, including those who have it all, and then were, alas, struck upon a rock, even at full sea and perished there. Now, I've got to admit, this is sounding a little bit like Martin's early sermons. Like, this is, this is not what a bunch of sailors want to hear. So, you know, perhaps not the best thoughts for your congregation. But perhaps O'Brien had another reason for including them. In addition to this slightly ominous note that they sound as the surprise anticipates going into action, later in the sermon, Martin adds a number of thoughts to make the point that no length of time comprehensible to man compares to how long eternity will be, this you know, kind of endless eternity. So, you know, let's get into a little bit of perhaps why, you know, O'Brien stuck this here. So these, the first half of the sermon is straight out of John Donne, the, the English poet and scholar, interestingly, son of a Catholic family who became a Church of England clergyman on the king's orders. Mm. So nod to Stephen here as well as to Martin. And and this comes from a sermon that Dunn had preached on Candlemas Day on the text Romans 13, 7. In King James, that, that text reads, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor is due as the reading. Or, you know, we might say nowadays, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So, you know, Dunn is kind of telling us to give credit where credit's due, including giving yourself credit, he goes on, for what you've done and for what you owe yourself. But don't forget that, you know, it's God who's blessed your efforts and don't forget how much you owe others that, you know, we don't prosper by our own hands alone. Now, piece of that, that wouldn't be bad. Yeah. And by the way, Mike, we, I know that we've heard in previous books in the canon that Nathaniel Martin has dipped into the sermons of John Donne and has right. been mentioned explicitly in the text. 
So this is a, a, a really nice reward. If you remember the connection to John Donne, you get this nice set of illusions and you can see how he's built the quotes up. But there's something else, isn't there, if we read on this particular John Donne text a little bit further? Well, yeah, actually, if we start with the lines just before where Martin starts, and that was what fascinated me, huh. is I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, okay, I can see how this sermon works, but, but why did O'Brien stick this in here? Well, this is the sentence just before the section that Martin quotes. It says, I am become a dangerous man to myself. I dare not trust myself alone. Though I abstain from my former sinful company, yet custom of sin hath made me a temptation to myself, and I sin where no temptation offers itself. I have nobody to save, says St. Bernard in his cloister, but myself, and I cannot do that, but I damn myself alone. And I'm thinking, now, this is Nathaniel Martin. I've oh, broken yeah. my viola. I'm not going to dinner. And I'm still thinking about this woman all the time. So right here by myself, <laughs> and I thought, oh, my gosh, O'Brien, what a brilliant job you've done here. Uh, and not only for Nathaniel Martin, in a way, for the whole crew. I am become yes. a dangerous man to myself. Wow. <laughs> you know, it, if, phenomenal. If, I, I just love this here. If, if you weren't sure what the major themes of this novel were, all you've got to do is read back a few, a few paragraphs in John Donne's sermons and you get it. Fantastic. There you go. Now, Mike, I think you said that the, the piece about eternity in the second half of the sermon didn't, didn't seem to be connected to, to Donne, right? But it's still a very apposite reflection on us all getting a sense of perspective about who we are and where we are and, uh, and what eternity really looks like. Right, exactly. And especially with somebody like Martin thinking, okay, you know, we, we've already had Clarissa talk about how, you know, intercourse is is incredibly short and, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And I think it's this idea that says any ill-gotten pleasure in this short temporary world compared to the consequences for attorney. I'm sure that's Martin's mindset for one here. Yeah, you don't want to do that. And, you know, it's so reminiscent of the way each of the articles, you know, kind of round off by saying shall suffer death, meaning, yeah, your, your temporary infringement is going to be permanently <laughs> to your disadvantage, right? Wow. But Mike, since we're talking about Nathaniel Martin, one of the people that we've come across who's got a really great perspective on Nathaniel Martin and his character and how the books hang together is our special guest for today, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Josh has written these great articles about the different O'Brien novels and, and really unique perspectives. And we were delighted to be able to get together with him and, and talk about the canon and then specifically to talk about this book. It's time for us now to welcome our special guest, Joshua Corey. Josh is a poet, novelist, translator, and critic. His most recent books include How Long Is Now, a novel, and the poetry collection Hannah and the Master. But most significantly, we found out about Josh because he writes about the Aubrey Maturin series and other items of literary cultural interest at his Substack page, Dream of a Rabbit Fiend. Josh lives in Evanston, Illinois, with his wife and teenage daughter, and is a professor of English at Lake Forest College. Welcome to the show, Josh. Tell us a bit about yourself, Josh. How do you come to be where you are doing what you're doing? Because I think we first noticed you with those fantastic essays that you've put on right. uh, online. Well, I guess one way to talk about it is, uh, you know, I started writing things on the internet back in the aughts. I had a blog that I started back in 2003 when I was a graduate student studying uh, poetry, modernist poetry at wow. Cornell University. 
Um, and uh, I had my first book of poems coming out. And I thought, well, it might be nice to, you know, blogging was just starting to happen. A lot of poets were starting blogs. So I thought, well, that might be a nice way to, you know, uh, reach my audience such as it is, right? Mm -hmm. For, you know, avant-garde poetry audience, uh, specialized, shall I say, highly specialized. And uh, to my surprise, uh, I, I, it was a great thing. I met many people virtually and then in real life. Uh, people asked me to submit things and publish things. And it wow. became a significant part of my writerly identity. And, uh, you know, then somewhere around, I don't know, 20, 2009, 2010, like blogging just started to die uh, as yeah. the as social media, uh, you know, packaged social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, took over. Oh, and my life had changed a lot too. I had gone from being a childless graduate student with, you know, almost nothing to think about except poetry to I had a job, I had a kid, I had a wife, I had a new life in Chicago. Um, wow. And so in that respect, actually like the, what used to be the 110 characters of Twitter seemed to be about my speed. Um, <laughs> you know, now that I no longer could take whole days to crank out this completely uncompensated content. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, I guess for me, it's also a pandemic-y project in that um, I realized I'm still, you know, I write fiction, I write poetry, I write criticism, all small press stuff. Also, you know, I've reached a certain stage in my life where, you know, I'm extremely fortunate. Like I'm actually a tenured professor. Um, nice. So I get to, thank you. So, um, you know, I don't have the pressures that a younger academic does or somebody who doesn't have that birth, I can basically write and think about whatever I want to write and think about. So I'm extraordinarily fortunate. And so I began to realize like, what am I actually spending most of my time thinking about right now? And it wasn't uh, poetry so much at that moment. And it wasn't even like the kind of modernist fiction that I had become really interested in and involved in. It was Patrick O'Brien. Ah, nice. So I started this, I started this Substack as kind of out of nostalgia for blogging and as a way to, you know, write in a longer form and in an essayistic way. And it was going to be about just whatever I was interested in. And I gave it this, you know, absurd title from the old, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? The guy who came up with Little Nemo. The cartoonist. Yes, yes. Uh, McKay, McKay. I don't want to look it up, but it will come back to me. But anyway. Uh, so dream of a rarebit fiend, you know, because, right. but, you know, toasted, rarebit is toasted cheese. Toasted so you're right. starting to see the connection. <laughs> yep. And then one day I found myself uh, writing the first post and I just thought like, you know, I, I love a project. And I suddenly thought like, gosh, there are 21 of these books that, uh, that might be fun to give myself the challenge of writing 21 essays uh, about them. And now suddenly here I am on like number 16 or whatever it is I just posted. And it's been uh, a wonderful way to re-encounter the canon on mm -hmm. what I think is my fourth time through. Nice. And uh, they just they keep rewarding my attention. There's more and more to say about them. And this time around, as I think I've written about, I find myself particularly drawn to the saga of Stephen, kind of, I don't know, his be becoming more of a human being, really, because uh, yeah. I feel like he begins. He, you know, Jack, there's a plenitude to Jack, right? Jack is always kind of overflowing with good spirits and heartiness and cheer, except when he isn't, right? Like when he has yeah, a liver, yeah. <laughs> you know, ailment. 
Um, and Stephen is uh, the opposite of that, you know, meager, right? That's one of my favorite adjectives yeah. for Stephen that O'Brien is, <laughs> you know, his meager person. Uh, there's something incomplete about Stephen, yeah. which kind of haunts me and that I relate to in some fundamental way. I, I can't help but see him as being in some way a portrait of the author, um, yeah. even though I actually, I feel like O'Brien himself is perfectly, is, is unknowable, but, you know, biographies aside. Yeah. But that, you know, the unknowableness and mystery, that's the other thing that fascinates me about these books is the way he leaves out the things uh, a less interesting writer would make a big deal about, right? The way he like is, you know, there's a, um, I've, been, I've been playing around with screenwriting lately. I've been uh, working okay. on a TV pilot, actually. Wow. And um, one of the things that people say to screenwriters, and I guess this is just good advice for storytellers, is like, you begin the scene as late as possible. Yeah. Right. You get into the scene at the last possible moment. Yeah. O'Brien just leaves it out. Yeah. Yeah. And or 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 then you just see the consequences of the scene, and then maybe later, after the dramatic charge is seemingly kind of expended, then we'll get a recollection. Usually, you know, it'll be over. Uh, you know, it'll be over one of those dinners with people drawing in wine on the table or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Um, forget, forget in medias res, what, whatever the equivalent is after the action is, that's that's where we start out now. Yes. So, you know, it's just a delight to be able to take these books seriously mm. um, and, and bring my kind of English professor skills to bear while at the same time feeling just this, um, just this unabashed love for the books, for the characters, even again, for the unknowable figure of the author whose humanity is very, very present, I feel, yeah. in the books. I don't know if I've accounted for myself at all, but I think I've accounted at least for why I care about the books. Well, I'll tell you those those English professor skills, as as well as somebody who loves the canon, come in handy. I was I was blown away, you know, reading your piece about Clarissa Oaks slash true love the reference back to the book Clarissa. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, how obvious is this? How how in my face has this been? And I completely missed it. And I could go on and on with those sorts of things. So well done, Josh, thank you. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny, like, because I I bring a certain, I don't know, education or whatever, uh, I'm very aware of, you know, the kind of sometimes cheeky ways O'Brien puts himself alongside the novelists that would have been contemporary yeah. with Jack and Stephen, right. right? And of course, there are some delicious literary discussions that take place. <laughs> one one place where I'm less well read, and I'm only just starting to dig around in though, is uh, you know, like 18th and early 19th century sea narratives. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've only just begun to dig around a little bit in like Lord Cochrane's memoirs, yeah. for example. But there are so many, and and and, and this is really embarrassing. I haven't really read Forrester. Uh, you know, I think I maybe, okay. I think I'm, I, I'm pretty sure I did read Mr. Midshipman Hornblower a zillion years ago, yeah. which I think is the first one. Yeah. Well, yeah. First chronologically, not the first in order of publication. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Right. Uh, and that's always, that's always, yeah. I, I often like which book to read first, the one that was written first or the, right. and I've seen, uh, and I remember uh, I really enjoyed uh, the episodes of the, uh, the TV series. Yeah, uh, with um, Ewan Griffith. Yes. Was that in the 90s? That yeah, was a long time, a long time ago. ago. Yeah. Um, they were all much longer, younger and better looking than they are now. <laughs> yes, yes. I still remember the uh, the one I remember most vividly is the one where they had uh, David Warner as this kind of maniacal, uh, kind of Captain Bly-like captain. Yeah. 
So I, I thought Robert Lindsay's turn as, as Pelu was great as well. A bit more brash than the Pelu that I thought I read off the page, but it was really, really good. I like Robert Lindsay a lot. Well, see, now I have to read the book so I can understand that reference you just made. <laughs> well, it's funny. Cause I, I, I mean, lots of people have the pattern that I had, which is as a teenager, I saw them on the shelf and I read, saw Homeblower as that is, and I read Homeblower. And I read a few other bits of Forrester, which I, some of the others I think are actually better. So some of his World War II books are, are even better because he's got this slightly cold, slightly forensic, slightly impersonal way of writing. It's not as rich in characterization terms at all. Did he write The Cane Mutiny? Is that, is yeah. that Forrester? Yeah, he wrote The Cane Mutiny. He wrote That's The Good Forrester. Shepherd. He okay. wrote um, The Ship. My favorite is The Ship, which is almost a, it was a sort of documentary propaganda novel, really, about life on the on Mediterranean convoys. But it's not, I mean, it's, you know, you're talking about fish and fowl in terms of what, I'm not just going to say quality because I think Forrester is great for the for the thing that he's trying to achieve, which is genre fiction, really proper genre fiction. I don't think O'Brien's is really genre fiction. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's yeah. enjoyable and the yeah. action's great and it keeps your pages turning. Yeah, yeah, that's probably why it didn't stick with me as much as I love, you know, the whole, yeah. you know, wooden ships and Iron Man thing. Yeah, uh, right. there's there's something about O'Brien's. Uh, he just works so much by implication. Yeah, um, and there are, there's a whole secret novel inside the novel of the things he doesn't say directly, which yeah. you get to infer and. Mm. You know, I was just browsing around on, I don't know, somebody's websites, uh, some talking about the Clarissa Oaks, the true love and um, like speculation as to the nature of different characters relationships with each other, because you really don't know, mm. you know, mm. like to go back to go back uh, in time, a couple books to uh, uh, Diana and Jagiello, right? right? Yeah. You know, did they or didn't they? We really yeah. don't know. You, you could kind of read it whichever way you want to. We're, we're hardly ever with them as a, as, a, as a couple anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I love that every now and again, he foregrounds an author. So one of the early books, Mike, I remember you and I were digging, like every other reference was to to Dryden. Right. And I think yes. it, Clarissa Oak slash True Love, there's quite a lot of Othello. Like I've already, uh, there's more, more than the average number of Othello allusions. So he's decided that. The Spartan dog. Yeah, the Spartan dog, exactly. And a bunch right, of other things as well. right. Right. And, 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 and Shakespearean sonnets here in the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting, of course, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, that's a play about jealousy. Uh, and, uh, jealousy is, it's like a fire aboard the, uh, surprise. Oh yeah. And then there's another thing I, I, I tried to write about this a little bit, but also again, fascinating by how, partly because I think we are always seeing things from Jack or Steven's perspective, but I don't know. There's a curious, interesting. There's an interesting limitation to the point of view in this book because we we never see anyone interacting with Clarissa except Stephen, really, right. or when she's in public, like when she comes to a gunroom dinner. And, but, you know, this affliction that she is somehow responsible for, or the cause of, or at least the circumstance for, is just uh, tearing the ship apart. But uh, we we have to we have to infer it. We have to infer it yeah. from like bad behavior at a dinner or something like yeah. that. There's an observation where Jack comes to the dinner. Uh, he could only guess at the causes. The effects to a man who had spent most of his life at sea were perfectly evident. Yeah. The gun room, as a civilized community, was almost at an end. Right. Which reads as you know nigh apocalyptic yeah. in uh, a novel series in which the surprise is presented i mean there are other ships too but this we always come back to the surprise as this this locus of this you know the happy ship yeah right not even steven seems capable of imagining anything better than life on a happy ship right so 
if the civilized community is coming to an end that has a resonance far, far beyond right, whether the surprise is going to be able to continue to function. Yeah. It really seems almost like to resonate with the larger disruption uh, of the Napoleonic Wars and the colonial era and many other things. Josh, I was curious what you make of Nathaniel Martin. I mean, Martin's a, he's, a, he's an interesting case, right? I mean, in some ways, he's he's like a demi-Stephen, you know? He's like a less successful Stephen because, like Stephen, his his membership in the community is a little provisional, right? Yeah. And he and he knows it as well. He's kind of he's always picking up on whether he's really. You know, oh, he's very aware of it. Yeah, and we really start to see. I think uh, Jack's beneficence, you know, offering him these livings, seems to oppress him uh, as much as it gratifies him because he's never forgets. You know, the contrast between him and Stephen. Like Stephen gets this kind of special treatment uh, because everyone knows he's the captain's particular friend, and everyone knows also that Martin is not uh, the captain's friend and that the captain with the best will in the world just can't bring himself to like Nathaniel Martin. So he's almost like, a, I don't know, I keep wanting to use like, you know, uh, a Demi Stephen, but he's yeah. also like a, a Demi Jonah, you know, yeah. like he's always on the verge. He's always on the verge of maybe, you know, being a parson doesn't help. But I'm also like, you know, his fabled unluckiness, right? Yeah. Um, this just occurred to me this morning. I was, you know, thinking about Martin and kind of browsing around a little, and I suddenly, like, you know, even in this book, like the theme of how the the tragedy of Nathaniel Martin, if I can put it that way, which you know he's more of a comic character, so I don't know if we can quite say that, but the tragedy of Nathaniel Martin is that he, he repels the things he loves, right? Yeah. I mean, this man loves animals, and the animals <laughs> hate him. Oh, him. Yeah. <laughs> they. Well, he lost an eye, right? Yeah. Years ago, my family went uh, to a, we were on a vacation with my father and we went to a petting zoo and uh, my father got himself bitten by a camel. Oh, wow. There was a camel at this petting zoo. And uh, there's even a sign saying like, keep your distance from the camel, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think there were some like, there have been some obstreperous camels in the canon, haven't there? But my father, you know, he couldn't resist reaching out to kind of pat this camel on the head. And, and he got bit, you know, and we had to go to a clinic for it. And it, he was fine. But it just kind of reminded me of how, I don't know, there's, there's something about one's relationship to animals mm. that I think we instinctively view as a mark of character, good, good or bad character, right? And animals love Stephen. They're all like, look, you know, they look into his face lovingly. They, they connect uh, with him. You know, to shift direction slightly, another thing about Martin I think that's interesting is there's a basic tension or maybe paradox is too strong a word mm -hmm. throughout these novels about we have, you know, Jack and Stephen and now Martin. Um, they all have uh, wives. They are men with these attachments on shore, right? These responsibilities. That, isn't that one of Martin's phrases? He's yeah. worried phrases. A man with my responsibilities. Yeah. Is it right to lead this wandering life? So it seems like Martin's desire, the desire that keeps him wandering, is starting to curdle. Yeah. As he starts to think more about what it will be to be a be a parson again, to go on shore mm. and stop being a naturalist and be actually with his wife. 
And uh, here's Clarissa, who is clearly like stirring in him these desires. The fact that she gets his attention dressed as a, as a man, as a boy. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to speculate too much about O'Brien's sexuality, but again and again, we these novels present us with women who either dress as men or have masculine traits, yeah. and this is part of their allure, right? Their dash, you know? And so Clarissa is another kind of mini Diana, the same way that Mrs. Wogan, Louisa Wogan, was a, a mini Diana on a smaller scale. So I guess I'm trying to draw a connection here between Clarissa in breeches and Martin's desire for her as kind of an interesting emblem of the sort of homosocial same-sex floating world that he wants to be a part of and yet never completely belongs to. One way I read these books is, you know, it's uh, uh, trying to envision a perfect society, right? You know, there's a utopian dimension to these novels. But the the conditions of that utopia are are very odd and very historically conditioned, right? It's an all-male world, except when it isn't. Right. And the fundamental condition, too, of the happy ship is war. Right. It's a war machine, right? Uh, the, end of, the end of war would be a complete disaster. It would be the end, uh, you know, the surprise faces at this point being decommissioned, right? So, you know, and, and that kind of anticipates, I think, the sort of greater decommissioning that is to come when uh, the war finally ends. Right, yeah. I can't remember where I heard this, but... Gosh, I was talking to somebody who was like a Vietnam veteran. Mm. He said something about like the thing about the war was that it had been it was a trauma from top to bottom, but it was also the best time in his life. Yeah. Wow. Because he was young. Ah. And he had never been so intensely alive. Right. And that's another thing these books are about is like living intensely versus like the kind of life and death that Jack imagines non-sailors <laughs> must endure, but which he himself is threatening to fall into, right? whether it's because of his liver condition or simply advancing age, Jack, too, is like losing contact with that vital spark. Stephen, meanwhile, I think, is always searching for that vital spark. You had mentioned, you know, neurodivergent earlier yes. before we yes. swapped in, and that's that's one that's fascinated me as well. I'd, you know. Well, I do think there's evidence Clarissa herself may be neurodivergent, you know? Nice. Her, yeah, good point. I hadn't thought of that. Her inability to kind of grasp social norms partly her unique education but maybe also something about how her brain works right even himself i think strikes me as often you know i i I think i think a case could be made i I know that not the first person to suggest this but i think a a case could be made that steven is on the autism spectrum right and uh that is uh for me another fascinating layer in his character. Steve is a little bit like, uh, what's that uh, famous book by uh, Oliver Sacks, an anthropologist on Mars. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, isn't that Stephen to a T? Right. Uh, from, from the very first book, right, when it's proposed to him or he thinks that, well, to, you know, be aboard ship, what better way to kind of examine the human animal? You've already done some writing on colonialism and how it plays out in the books, too. And I think all just really nicely done. And that clearly is a a tension here. It's why Jack was like, do I bring Stephen in? I can't bring Stephen in, you know, because he's going to see this as as us dominate. Oh, oh, well, the French might take it. Oh, now I can. Now I have a carte blanche. Yeah. Jack and Stephen are different in many ways, right? That's part of the charm of their friendship. But one of the uh, deepest tensions that is 
I think never resolved really is the fact that Jack is, you know, uh, a creature of the Navy and of England. Of Yes. Jack could, you know, if he could remember it and if he could avoid the Aubreyisms, like I'm sure he could do John of Gaunt's speech from Richard II, like yeah. extolling, <laughs> you know, the sceptered isle. Um, right. You know, I mean, the man is, he is, he is John Bull. And, 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 and Falstaff a little as well. Yes. Stephen is very much not that. You know, Stephen is a colonial subject times two. And yet he has allied himself with the British Empire it, at times implausibly, uh, right, I have to say. Right. You know, that's another that's a tension that the books I don't think fully resolve. You know, in the very in Master and Commander, the tension is dispelled because we have the foil of James Dillon. You know, Stephen has that great line about how I wouldn't cross this room to bring about the millennium. I'm I'm done with politics. Yeah. But politics aren't done with him. Right. The books are headed toward this fascinating detour into which both Jack and Stephen become anti-colonialist operators, I guess. Josh, I have to admit, I've, I've just bought your first novel this morning. Oh, As, uh, thank you. I, I was you know, kind of prepping for our discussion today. I was reading about what you'd written and some of those things, and I was blown away by a lot of other authors and, and reviewers' comments about your use of words. Your reviewers talk about, you know, kind of the way you use words to bring sensations and perceptions and experiences and characters together, the way that, you know, your writing resonates with echoes of the past and these echoes propel the narrative onward into the present and beyond into the future. You know, it's it's just I, it, it made me wonder. And I went back and went, what well, look, there's these books of poetry, these novels, there's these fascinating things you've been teaching in class. We're loving your essays on Patrick O'Brien. I just wanted to ask, you know, what are you up to now and, and what's next? Well, thank you. Well, as I did mention at some point, uh, I have been playing around with uh, the idea of a, a TV show or two. Um, nice. You know, I, I'm, I'm just, I want to do it all, you know, in my time on the planet. Like, I want to write as many kinds of things as I can. And taken, I've certainly written a lot of poetry. I've written a couple of novels now. I have, I have other novels. I, I have these... I have these uh, science fiction novels that I uh, haven't yet published, but that have been uh, were a lot of fun to write. One of which is about a floating community. Actually, uh, it's uh, wow. Uh, it's about a uh, an artificial floating island created by libertarian billionaires in an attempt to escape the chaos of climate change wow. uh, and what befalls them. So it's actually dystopian and not utopian. But you know, if any uh, publishers or literary agents are listening, that's available. <laughs> And uh, I have another project that's uh, long gestating about a, uh, a distant relative of mine. He was my grand, my, my, my paternal grandmother's first cousin. I don't know what that makes him to me, but his name was Barney Ross. And he was a boxer in Chicago in the 20s and 30s. He was actually a lightweight champion of the world. Uh, wow. And his life story is incredible. He was also a Marine on Guadalcanal. He was also a drug addict. He was lifelong friends with Jack Ruby. Uh, who killed Oswald? Yeah. Oh my gosh! And and, and, was, a, and was a character witness uh, at Oswald's trial. Um, so I've been working on a novel about the two of them, my cousin and Jack Ruby, uh, which I think will be uh, a real barn burner if I can ever actually finish it. <laughs> the TV pilot that I'm working on right now is a, is a comedy actually that also is about male friendship, about two middle aged men who are kind of going nowhere with their lives and. They decide to try to start a podcast, actually, 
based on their mutual love of single malt scotch. Um, nice. But what it's really about is uh, just their kind of floundering for some kind of uh, viable identity. So how can these guys find their way toward a non a non toxic masculinity? That's uh, that's what I want that show to be about. Nice, boy. I I I, I can't wait to hear more about these and uh, to see more of it. Thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. Thank you, Ian. I appreciate it very much. And thank you, Mike. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, Mike, wasn't wasn't it great getting some time there with Josh? I, I love that. And I, th- I think we could have gone on for hours, hours. And maybe, you know, maybe we can circle back on some other books as well. I'm sure. And I'm sure we're not done talking about the characters and the writing and the depth here in uh, Closer Oaks. There's more to come in our conversations here. Watch this space. So meanwhile, back with the story, Jack's had a good dinner. He's had a good dinner sitting down with Stephen, with Tom Pullings, with Martin, and with Reed, although Pullings and Reed are still pretty oppressed by the memory of the unmooring exhibition at Anamuka. They join Mrs. Oaks on the taffrail later. Oh, that's, that's a very Jane austen sentence. Ah, oh, they join Mrs. Oaks at the taffrail. Right. She is delighted by the speed. Remember, we're now in the trade winds and the surprise is really rattling along. Um, They talk about the disadvantages and the advantages, in fact, of traveling by sea rather than by land. And Martin still seems to be uncomfortable around Clarissa, which, given the fire and brimstone content of Dean Dunn's sermon just a couple of paragraphs ago, is not altogether surprising. It shows when he adds a story to this conversation with Clarissa. She seems secretly amused and she helps Martin out with some polite attention and from time to time saying, oh, heavens and dear me. The conversation then turns to her footrest as she asks why it's called a a wad of cheese. And Jack politely corrects her. She's just committed a minor Aubreyism on a nautical terminology, which is great. (laughs) He says it's actually a cheese of wads. It's a cloth cylinder that's shaped like a Stilton cheese and it's filled with wads. These are the layers of cloth that are used to hold the powder and shot in place in the great guns. And Jack explains the loading of a fouling piece and compares it to the great guns. And be be careful of your points of comparison here, Jack Aubrey. Clarissa nodding her head in agreement. All sounds fine here. And Stephen is certain that if she had spoken at that moment, in the words of the text, her voice would have been as unnatural as Martin's. And maybe that's because Stephen is aware and remembering right now that the topic of loading and firing a gun is pretty germane. It's germane to the conversation that she had with Stephen on their first conversation back on Anamuka. It's germane to the fact that she was transported to New South Wales for blowing a man's head off. So there are all kinds of reasons why getting her into the conversation at this point might have been awkward, might even have been a bit triggering for her. Anyhow, Jack is perhaps not entirely aware of all these subtleties and currents in the conversation. He goes on and says what's happening in the military situation here. He says, we're getting close to Christmas Island. He recalls the fact that Clarissa has never seen the great guns fired and alludes to the planned target practice that's coming the next day. Jack invites Clarissa to come and watch. Unless, he says, like some elegant females, she wouldn't like being in close proximity to a fired gun. And Clarissa takes this in good part and deftly sidesteps her way around what could have been a tricky moment. She says, well, I'm not so elegant a female as to mind the report of a gun. And she politely accepts the invitation, which is great on her as she leaves to wake her husband up the lookout cries land ho and in true o'brien scatological style we have a quieter crude remark sotto voce about the palm trees to his friends in the main top i wonder what he could have been thinking of (laughs) well 
in the morning, Stephen and Martin are in the mizzen top surveying the island, and, and they're almost crushed by all these hands racing aloft to spread the top gallant sails. And Stephen believes that the land that they've sailed past all night is this vast atoll. And, and Stephen, of course, is correct. Christmas Island is is today uh, the island that in the native language would be called Carabas, uh, and it's the world's largest atoll. Uh, it's a ring-shaped reef island, you know, kind of a chain of islands, all formed of coral. And interestingly, this makes it, you know, one of the first countries that will lose all of its land to climate change here. Wow. Um, the government has actually already purchased land in Fiji and in start and has encouraged the population to start moving now before this is all underwater here. Of course, O'Brien didn't know this at the time he was writing, but yeah, what a what an interesting. You know, an interesting thing is we go back to say, what, where, where's this Christmas island? So, you know, thank you, Tom and Canonade.net for pointing this out so we can get this reference here. Well, Stephen makes his usual complaints about sailing past yet another incredible island that they won't get to go visit and all the unknown things, you know, the nondescript things that they'll miss seeing. And instead of seeing it, he says, you know, they're going to haul off. They're going to have target practice, which accomplishes nothing except frightening the birds. And and Stephen knows that he said the same thing so many times before, and he said it to Martin. And the text says he realized that he might be being a bore, yet the tolerant smile on Martin's face, though very slight indeed, vexed him extremely. And I thought, wow, that, that was a little odd, you know, thing. Yeah. I just had to note that, like, wow, okay. It's, it's at the very least, I guess, a little reminder that Martin is capable of pissing some people off. <laughs> right. And, and for all, Stephen and he had fun dipping for fish and squids and whatnot in the boat. He's still a little bit of an awkward character. Anyhow, after dinner, Stephen tells Jack that his quote from Hobbes at yesterday's breakfast, when they had been discussing Jack's youth, had been, according to his conscience, which has never been wrong, improper and inaccurate. And he's talking about saying that midshipmen were nasty, brutish and short. And the actual quote from Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan is that life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. And while poor might well apply to a midshipman, solitary does not describe the overcrowded birth of Jack's youth. And Stephen says that was a false quotation, one of those flashy, worthless attempts at wit that I so much reprehend in others. And I think that there's not only wit um, transacting between Jack and Stephen here, there's wit between Patrick O'Brien and us readers, right? He's used this Hobbes quote in a fairly flashy and jokey way himself on a few occasions, not only in the situation that Stephen and Jack are talking about here. Martin talking about intercourse, describing it as nasty, brutish and short during a discussion of mating ceremonies on the far side of the world. Stephen describing his own early life as solitary, poor, nasty and brutish to Van Buren in the 13-gun salute just a little while ago. So this is kind of one of the house go-to quotes that we're all allowed to mangle a little bit around here. And Stephen, meanwhile, says he's not beating his breast, confessing his sin. And he uses this, to, to Catholics, very familiar little Latin tag here, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. It's part of the confessional prayers um, heard in the Catholic Mass. And Stephen brings it up, this idea of confession and mea culpa, because he wants to tell Jack about another quote that he found on the same page when he was in Hobbes's writing. 
Hobbes says that glory, after competition and diffidence, is mankind's third principal cause of quarrel. Am I, th this takes me all the way back to the, the Dryden poem about having a chase having a beast in view. And I love this connection here. The quote goes, trifles as a word, a smile, a different opinion, or any other sign of undervalue were enough to bring violence about, nay, destruction. And again, Mike, this seems to be a reference to the fact that the, the seeds of destruction are probably right here in the ship. The smiles, the different opinions, the signs of, uh, of undervalue. Stephen says he's read the passage before, but its full force had escaped him until today when just such a trifle... Uh, and they're interrupted by Tom Pullings. What do you think is going on as he's referring to this trifling, smiling stuff? Well, you know, I, I couldn't... It just seems so out of place for Martin's little trifle of a smile to upset Stephen so much. And then we get this explanation, Stephen to Jack. So it, it couldn't help but think that perhaps Stephen is now really feeling even more deeply, not on an intellectual level, but at some deep emotional level. Oh my gosh, if Hobbes is saying that just these kinds of trifles are the things that start quarrels and start this you know, incredible competition between men, that that's it. I, you know, if, if this Martin's little smile versus all these interactions between the officers and Mrs. Oaks, and, you know, Hobbes talks about all three of those. We have competition, we have lack of confidence, and we have glory as these three things. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, here they all are with these, all of us guys <laughs> hanging, hanging around Clarissa Oaks' doorway here, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it you know kind of made me wonder too. I wish I wanted so badly for Stephen to be able to finish that sentence before Pullings walked in and go, "Tell us more, tell us more, Stephen." Right. <laughs> well, it, it introduces a really interesting note of what happens next, because yes. lo lots of the narrative is telling us we're heading to fight with the forces on Mawahu. Jack is in the process of drilling the crew and getting them all aligned and cohesive, and we're starting to hear this drumbeat of the forthcoming naval battle. And maybe O'Brien here is making us think, well, 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 hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Maybe we're not even going to get to the naval battle. Maybe the divisions in the ship and smiles and trifles are going to blow up in our faces before we even get to the battle. So even with a small chapter count still to go, we're still being invited to think, well, maybe, maybe this story isn't going to end up the way that we expect it. Ah. This other thing, Ian, that, you know, this idea about, you know, all these things being... Um, the things that drive violence and destruction. And I'm thinking, okay, competition, a desire for glory, and in amongst them, lack of confidence. And then, so I'm sitting here watching our political scene nowadays going, wow, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that interesting too? But having said that, we're, we're about to enter a competition. Pullings had come in to say, the targets are ready, Captain, and the gun crews are ready too. And fascinatingly, O'Brien tells us that they'd been getting ready ever since Jack had made the comment to Clarissa about gunnery practice, you know, the evening before, and some crew members had heard it. So the word had completely circulated around the ship. Every gun crew wanted to beat their neighbors and to beat every other gun crew on their ship. And they're all especially eager to mollify their skipper, right? They love Jack so much. They want to regain his esteem. They want to come back from that unmoor ship thing. And 
every crew member, uh, including the midshipmen and the officers and the gunner, Mr. Smith, had spent every spare moment from the time that comment was overheard and circulated until now preparing for this competition. So, boy, Hobbes is so right. (laughs) So nobody is surprised when the drum beats to quarters and Mrs. Oakes appears at the barricade and the captain calls silence in the midst of what is already this expected (laughs) hush. So Jack gives the, you know, the ritual, cast loose your guns and Mr. Buckley carry on. And no more orders are given after that. And I think this is such a great black and white change to that whole unmoor ship. This is this is the surprise as she used to run now. The targets are loosed. And Sam, we had to say loose because Sam Luce is our editor. So we've loosed the target, Sam. And if the course is adjusted, the sails are trimmed with no words passing between anybody, you know, so that the gunners have run back, they've attended to their sail duties, they're back at their guns, no orders. Again, we're being reinforced. Ah, we're right back. Jack's plan has worked here. And we get all of the wonderful details, so typical in a great gun exercise, including, Ian, as you alluded to at the beginning of the episode, the smell of slow match drifting along the deck. And Jack then calls you from forward aft, and has the helmsman turn starboard a point. And, and the guns go off in this rolling series of deafening crashes, followed by the quarterdeck cavernades, whose shots could be seen when the smoke had cleared, landing where the targets used to be. So they're not only fast and deafening, they're all deadly, and all the shots are going right home. Boy, I'm loving that. And so far, so similar to lots of other gunnery exercises that we've had aboard the Surprise and other Jack Aubrey commands. But we get a little reminder right away that this is a rather different context. The forward guns are already reloaded when Jack hears a thin remote clapping in his deafened ears. And he turns and he sees Mrs. Oaks, delighted, eyes dark with emotion. She's crying, oh, how splendid, oh, what glory, and wishes that Dr. Maturin were here to see the prodigious, uh, she can't find the words to say what it is that's prodigious. Now, the two minutes between the broadsides that follows is, in fact, the far cry from the old surprises, three broadsides in three minutes and eight seconds. But she's not to know that. She's really carried away. The surprise now carries many privateers. There are men who are used to sharing the proceeds of voyages, and it's not in their nature to waste powder, even if the king is paying for it. And the the gun closest here, Sudden Death, which is, by the way, one of the gun names that you'll see scratched onto the side of a gun carriage in the uh, Peter Weir movie, Master and Commander. This gun's sudden death is manned entirely by Sethians, the bearded Christian sect guys, and they are very deliberate in their aim. The next round is 1 minute 41 seconds between broadsides. The ship turns and the larboard guns have their chance. And afterwards, Jack gets to turn with a bit of pride, it has to be said, to Clarissa and asks how she's liked it. And she says she's amazed, the sound of glory. She says that a battle must be a terrible, splendid thing like the Day of Judgment. And she's intending to ask him what he's going to do with that fifth target. He tells, well, that, tells her that's for the bow chasers. He has never at this moment seen Clarissa being more animated or more handsome with her excitement, her candid excitement, enthusiasm. And he is tempted to invite her forward to see them pointing the guns, you know, insert symbolism joke here. Right. Um, but he decides that the invitation is out of place. Very wise, especially if you're keeping a diary of your actions to describe to Sophie. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. The crew gets to talk then with some 
pride, it has to be said, about their wonderful accuracy and speed. We turn to the crew of another gun. This one's called Spitfire. The captain of Spitfire says, we should have been even quicker if some people had not been more sudden than dead. And his neighbour, Slade, who's the captain of the gun, Sudden Death, replies, and we should have been more accurate if other people had been more deadly than sudden. So I don't know quite how to make this. This is either banter that shows the ship is pulling together or it's a bit of needle that shows that people are still actually quite willing to be fractious and to to kind of argue with each other for the point of it. Yeah, and it, and it definitely, I mean, you know, even... Yeah, you know, almost the Dickens like, and I think we talked about that with Josh. This, you know, this interesting, fascinating secondary characters that really do play a part in the story here. Yeah. Uh, well, on the forecastle at Jack's brass nine pounders, you know, they're called brass nine pounders. They're actually made of bronze, but the crew always publishes them as close to brass as they can manage. Jack and Tom are at their handpicked guns, their handpicked gun crews, and they're all ready. And Jack's three rounds scatter the barrels and Pulling's three shots aim just the way Jack had taught him. So these guys both, you know, really aim the same way, skipped right through the wreckage that, you know, had been left behind. And this delights everybody, all the hands, everyone. And Mrs. Oaks and West and Davidge all give Jack and Tom joy of their shooting. So, you know, back to your point. And while, while there's still maybe a little things about the crew members, it's kind of some of the old stuff, uh, old surprises, Sethians. But now some of the people who have been most apart are now, you know, crowding around Jack and Tom, you know, all singing sort of from the same songbook. And, you know, this kind of leads us up to this great moment when Jack's going to gather the crew. So it's just before sunset. Jack assembles the crew. The captain, it says, uh, lovely contrast here with the beginning of the chapter. The captain, it says, had a benevolence they had not seen this many a weary day and night. And Jack says he's glad that they've warmed their guns and newly charged them because they're going to have to use them in a couple of days. He tells the crew about the mission to Moahu, about the captured British ship and the crew, about the American privateer, the Franklin, and his plan to lay alongside her and board her in the smoke. And the crew is delighted to hear this a bit of redemption of all kinds coming at last for the crew here jack doesn't want any of the surprises to be knocked on the head if they can avoid it so he says they're going to go in disguised as a whaler since the people up there will be happy to see any whaler english or american if they've thrown up batteries and smoke what the surprise is up to then they'll deal with the situation in another way but as jack continues here in any case the first thing to do is to make the ship into a whaler we turned her into a blue Spanish bark once, as I dare say you remember, and that answered quite well. General laughter and a cry of, God love us, how we sweated. Now, says Jack, I know at least a score of you have been in the Greenland or South Seas fishery at one time or another, and I want those hands to choose the three longest-headed, most experienced men among them to help us change the barky into a whaler. A tired, shabby, down-at-heel, three-years-at-sea old whaler, short-handed and peaceful ah end of chapter eight whoa Uh, to to be honest to be honest mike we we still don't know we've had all these hints dropped about the enemy within and divisions among the crew and the 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 niggling anger is still there but it looks like we've ended the chapter on a super positive note we're going to get back into action here what are you thinking yeah i'm I'm really loving that I'm, i'm loving that 
you know, you, you hear the crew laughing and poking at each other in, in good terms, like, you know, border in the smoke. That's right, mate. Yeah. You know, and they're just, so, you know, it, it really does look, and this idea of, you know, all right, so we're now going to become this, you know, three years at sea, old whaler, shorthanded and peaceful after all this incredibly arduous work together. I, I think it sets a great tone. And I, I love how I'm so caught, you know, we're, we're in the midst of, of Stephen and Clarissa. We're in the midst of the crew. We're in the midst of Stephen back to Diana and all that. And, and you know, it's all, all this in this one chapter here. And we've learned so much more about Clarissa and, you know, this conversation about how her upbringing, you know, has sort of put her the way that she is about how men are the way they are and how much that when we think about some of these things, you know, how much do they really matter? These things that we make kind of life and death things out of, you know, I I guess that's one of the things about Stephen's comment about the Japanese and kissing and, you know, in, in, you know, back to Jane Austen and, oh my gosh, I think I saw somebody's ankle when she got onto that coach. It's like, (laughs) right. Oh, oh, help us, help us, help us. So I, and I do, you know, and you said, watch this space. I'm so looking forward to some conversations we've had to get a different view into our, our, our thoughts of these characters coming up yeah, soon here. Yeah, good. So really fascinating chapter. Really great to get the chance to talk to Josh as well. Um, yes. Still lots of questions unanswered, Mike. Here we are eight chapters in. We still don't know. Are we really heading into action or are we heading into internal strife? Is it going to be straightforward? Is it going to be political and personal? Are there more plotting tricks up the sleeve of Patrick O'Brien? Should we make anything of the appearance of the shark, Chekhov's shark? Right. If we go into action, Clarissa seems to love action. What impact is she going to have from her presence when all the fighting starts to kick off? What's that going to do for the officers, for the divisions among the divisions? And judging by Martin, and maybe judging a little bit by Jack's behavior, I don't think we've heard the end of all of this. What do you think? Well... You know, I, I, I certainly hope not because I don't want I, I do want to hear the end of all of them. <laughs> and this is certainly not the end. So and and interestingly, you know, I kept thinking, OK, we're at chapter eight. What do we have left to do here? And, and O'Brien's had such a cadence of 10 chapter books. I think when I set up the notes for this originally, I set it up for 10 chapters. But there's only one more chapter to go in this book. There is only nine chapters in this one. So it, I guess there's only one thing for it. What do you say next week to the last chapter of this with a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, I should like that of all things. to Martin. He's markedly polite to Clarissa. There you go, Sam. (laughs) He's markedly polite to Clarissa when he sees her.